0: Welcome to the CP4G podcast. The Change Politics for Good conference took place on the 29th of February 2020. The sessions were recorded and you can find all the discussions here. The discussion you are about to hear is called Changing Politics for Good. What next for radical Democrats? The speakers are Brian Monteith, Anaya Following Imam, Henrik Overgaard-Nielsen and Yasmin Fitzpatrick with Claire Fox as chair. Enjoy.
1: OK. Um, thank you to everyone who's stayed. I was, I, I was a bit worried that people might go home. I, I, did, I did actually notice that the people who were travelling back to Scotland have gone early. Splitters. <laughs> what can I say? What's more impressive is that we had a contingent he came from Scotland today, which was bloody impressive, actually, yeah, so yeah, fair yeah. enough. Um, so welcome to this uh, final plenary. I, I think that there's been an awful lot of food for thought, some really good contributions. And um, as we said at the start of the day, it's not that this event was ever going to come up with a you know, prescription or say what we should do now. But we did think it was important to have some kind of future-orientated look at the end about um, what we might do next or what different people, all of these people might, will have completely different, I don't even know what they're going to say, but I just invited them to say something. Um, This is a a call for uh, uh, changing politics for good, which... Those of us who were involved in the Brexit party will know was the one absolute thing that everybody of every party that I discussed said, great slogan that, changing politics for good. We need to change politics for good. And I think that is something to remember. And I remember doing a meeting very early on when I was standing to be an MEP and one guy very forcefully said to me, look, this isn't just about Brexit, you know. If you just do Brexit and then bugger off, that won't be enough. We've really got to change politics for good. And he said it in that way that it wasn't a slogan. And it stuck with me because I've always thought that although I'm delighted to be back in Civvy Street and not to be an MEP, I'm not interested in uh, electoral politics personally. I didn't ever want to be seen to be buggering off because I do actually want to change politics for good and I do think there's an opportunity to do it. It's just that I haven't got a bloody clue how. And so that's part of what this is about, right? Because I think a collective group of people hive mind might come up with something. So we're going to hear from uh, my collaborator on today's event, uh, Henrik Henrik Overgaard-Nielsen, who is, as we know, a former Brexit Party MEP. He's also a dentist. He's a trade unionist from 2015. He was the chair of the General Dental Practice Committee until he stood uh, for the Brexit Party. Uh, and that represented over 30,000 dentists he's a co-chair he was a co-chair of the Danish no campaign and I think he rightly has emphasised throughout his time as the MEP that this is not just a British issue it's a democracy issue and that there's Democrats throughout Europe who are our kindred spirits, or people we'd like to appeal to, to take the spirit of Brexit into their own country. This was never a little Englander, turn our back on Europe question. This was a turn our back on the EU. We are the first, but we hope many will join us. Um, and he's also, Henrik is also the co-founder of the new UK left EU organisation, which he mentioned at the beginning, which I'm sure he will talk about now. And one of the many organisations that are kind of being spawned by this new uh, democratic moment. We're then going to hear from Anaya Follarin-Imam, who is, until recently was a project manager of Index on Censorship, uh, the Free Speech for Me campaign, which is one of the absolutely best Index on Censorship campaigns, uh, uh, in my opinion. She's now the co-director of the new Free Speech Union. Uh, that Toby Young has set up, but which many people across the political border are involved in. Absolutely brilliant when I heard that Anaya was involved in it. It meant that I, basically I didn't need any more convincing because uh, I find her, uh, her thoughts on this both inspiring, insightful, and absolutely to the point. She's a freelance journalist and an artist, and she stood as a Brexit Party candidate in Leeds uh, Northeast. We're then going to hear from Yasmin Fitzpatrick, uh, Yasmin is a media consultant. She stood as a Brexit Party BBC in East Surrey for a little moment before she was stood down unceremoniously. Um, that's an in Brexit Party joke for some people. And, uh, she was, yeah, or not a joke, yeah, possibly. Uh, she's also uh, a former executive producer at the BBC, a former commissioning editor of Channel 4, Uh, She's worked as a project manager for the NHS and she's also a trained teacher and has a private business teaching uh, maths and English in in Brixton. And then we're finally going to hear from Brian Monteith, uh, the former, we used to call him Mr Whippy. Uh, He was the whip for the MEPs uh, over in uh, Brussels and uh, therefore we're all scared of him. Uh, He was uh, a a Brexit Party MEP for the North East. He was also an MSP for the Conservatives between 1999 and 2007. He's now the Director of Communications at Global Britain and has recently launched, and is editor of Brexit Watch, which is a fantastic addition to the uh, discussion forums and is producing some brilliant articles as we speak. And I hope we'll just go from strength to strength uh, as we move forward because we need to Brexit Watch uh, very closely, in fact, uh, moving forward because it isn't done we just started and somebody needs to keep an eagle eye on it and I think Brian is the man to lead that um, so, great panel, give them all a warm welcome please <laughs> we've got the gist of the format now they all get five minutes each and then over to you, effectively
2: okay. thank you very much Claire, and thank you everybody for staying for so long it might be the beer at the end that probably keeps you here but um, Anyway, uh, I was going to start talking a little bit about a PR system because being Danish, of course, I'm used to proportional representation. And uh, in Denmark, we've got it, we've got, uh, you need a a minimum of 2% of the votes and then you are secured at least four members of the Danish parliament. It works in the way, and I have many discussions uh, since I moved over here 25 years ago, uh, about whether first-past-the-post or the PR system is is, is best. Um, it is probably true that you are more likely to get a majority government without a PR system, but, but with the first-past-the-post, and therefore you get stronger governments as such. The advantage of the PR system is that you will have uh, minority views heard more easily, because if there are uh, people that want to, to set up a party, it's a lot easier, and it's a lot easier getting people in, in Parliament under a PR system. You can also retain uh, the constituency connection that you've got here, so you would have constituencies probably a little bit larger than they are now, but you would have one MP responsible for that constituency. That is possible as well. The other advantage of a PR system is that you will have the discussions where now the discussions, particularly with a huge majority like we've got at the moment with Boris Johnson, the discussions about what happens will happen within the Conservative Party. It won't happen out in the open. Whereas if you've got a PR system with several parties, and that's what we've got in Denmark, you you haven't got a majority government, uh, you will have several parties working together you would have those discussions between the parties and therefore more out in the open and more people can participate. I was then thinking about it when I thought about uh, this panel discussion and I was about to say that probably with with more smaller parties and you have to to work together to form a government, that you avoid the extremes, Uh, you avoid the extremes having too much power. And I was thinking about that, feeling quite pleased with myself, until I thought about the Israeli government at the moment, where the exact opposite, of course, is happening. So I don't think I can, I can claim that one. But it is something that I think we need to consider as we go forward. But you would, you would lose the thing about having a majority government, you would have weaker governments, but on the other hand, you would have several parties and a lot of people involved in it. And it is easier to get people involved in the political process. The the way... It's very difficult to sort of come up and say this is how we're going to do it and this is how we go forward. I think one of the possibilities would be to look at the old sort of when we had parish councils and things like that. Uh, the, moving the democratic process closer to people would be more likely to engage people. The other advantage of it would also be that you wouldn't have the political parties being that interested when it becomes that small. You would avoid the professionalization of the political process, in my opinion. And the main thing also would be that if you move it down to smaller uh, areas, like parish councils, you would vote for somebody you knew. It would be the guy down the road that you know. And actually, it wouldn't be so important whether he had a blue or a green or a red rosette on his jacket. It would be more that you know him, and also, therefore, he would be more responsible, because if he didn't do what you wanted him to do, you would knock on his door and tell him he was a (laughs) tosspot. So I think that might be something to consider. However, the other thing I thought about, and that's a couple of weeks ago, I, I had a, a thought, and, and it, it's, it's a little bit to do with, with getting... I'm not quite sure. I mean, the, the UK left the EU is very much a question of trying to go into schools, trying to go into universities, and try and talk to youngsters about Brexit and the positive side of Brexit. And obviously also get them interested in politics would be another reason. And I don't know if it's just youngsters, but I was very surprised. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking whether we need to get people more engaged in the political process raise the level of discussion we have in this country and the reason I'm saying that and I'm being provocative now but actually a couple of weeks ago I mean we've got the Brexit uh, debacle going on we've got uh, the EU coming out with what they uh, what their negotiating position is and we were waiting for the government at that point to come out with theirs we have severe flooding in Yorkshire uh, discussions about you know climate emergency and how is that that happening Uh, in the sense of the flooding in Yorkshire we have the coronavirus uh, happening everywhere and everybody's very worried but on that day the main story the main story on the BBC was that Philip Schofield had told them that he was gay (laughs) (laughs) and can I just point out that you know I think it's very important for Philip Schofield and obviously very important for his family but I personally couldn't give a flying (laughs) far and <laughs> and I have a feeling that it's partly to blame the BBC for it but it's actually partly to blame the electorate for it as well and we do need to raise the level of discussion a little bit and I know that's provocative to say that but I think we all have a little bit of a responsibility uh, for doing that so thank you very much
1: Uh, great start, Henrik, no. and I. Stop. stop.
3: Can everyone hear me? No. No.
1: shout
4: yes. <laughs> yes.
3: All right. Um, yeah. So I want to kind of just summarise some of the things that um, I've drawn out over the past few months, but particularly like in these discussions and some of the themes that have been really prominent. And um, so there's kind of three things that have really stood out to me. The first thing's been. Obviously, constitutional reform that we've been talking about, and obviously, like we need to always remember that um, obviously Brexit was about leaving the EU. But our um, political system in Westminster was very much complicit in kind of contracting out our sovereignty, and so post-Brexit, we need to continue that process of democratization and bringing um, politics and decision making closer to home with reforming the House of Lords, potentially having these discussions about changing the voting system. But one of the things that's been really important to me is this idea of reinvigorating civil society, and free speech has been something that has come out a lot, but I think that um, it's even more kind of pressing than sometimes how it's framed. It's not just about kind of people not being able to express their opinion. What I found particularly is this kind of anti-free speech culture and permissive culture of self-censorship is really embedded in a lot of our institutions now. And I think it's even become an issue of child protection or we saw the kind of ruling gangs, and also, um, for example, where we're seeing people not being comfortable talking and speaking out against the, the kind of transitioning of children, the kind of gender non-conforming. So these are really, really serious issues that we need to be confident and forthright and speaking up against and challenging. And so I think that we need to kind of look at how we can, as people that have already been quite active in this process, being proactive and championing free speech. And so the first thing that I think... Um, is continuing fantastic events like this, but really embedding that um, and engendering a free speech culture. So continuing to organise this and things like this up and down the country um, regularly. So discussion and debate with ordinary people um, and the electorate becomes frequent and we're all active participants in the process of democracy and our political process. And I think that that really begins to challenge the separation between us and the establishment where decisions are made separately by experts. If we're very much part of that process, continually talking about those issues, then I think it becomes a lot easier to raise the level of debate and conversation. And a lot of these uh, organisations like the BBC then genuinely take people seriously when we have things like question time, which is very, very superficial. But also, I think that when it comes to young people, I think we also need Um. to remember that um, young people have inherited um, a system, and so when we're talking about young people as kind of going to university and being indoctrinated as much as I think that's true, that process has started um, a lot earlier in education and in things like that, and there has been a kind of collapse of adult authority. And I think us as adults, if we are in contact with young people, whether that's you know our children, our grandchildren. Um, if you 're a teacher and academic, I think we really have to be proactive in exposing young people to a range of ideas, taking them to debates events, and academics and t- teachers really starting that conversation in those institutions um, as was' set up the director of the free speech union i 've already had loads of teachers email me asking me to put on talks and debates in schools, so I think that there is a space to be able to do that, but we really have to kind of stand up and, and and show that there are people out there that want those things to happen. So I think that's really important. And I think that in the kind of climate of anxiety and frustration towards, that um, towards the woke, I think that we have to be careful not to meet the kind of one-dimensional simplicity of the wokeness with simplicity also, because I think many of these questions are complex, these questions of citizenship, what does it mean to be British? And I think that there are they are very nuanced. So for example... You know, the woke people have talked a lot about racism and made everything um, seen through the prism of race, and I think that they've taken it too far. But there are also legitimate conversations to be had about the way in which um, ethnic minorities might experience citizenship differently, such as the Windrush scandal. So I think that we have to also um, do ourselves justice and not give in to the simplicity that um, it's being advocated. Yeah. But also, um, with organisations like the BBC... I think many people have rightfully said so been really frustrated with the BBC, but I think that we can expect much more from them, and I think that this idea of a public service broadcasting needs to be examined, but also I think that there are things that the BBC can do, and organisations like the BBC and Channel 4, and things like that, to bring the country together, hosting genuine, meaningful, substantive debates about these complex issues, and not making it kind of just Katie Hopkins versus a kind of identitarian left wing, I think that's really unhelpful but kind of also doing programmes where we have people from the north and the south, people from London coming together and discussing important issues together. If we're all seeing that, we can all kind of be part of that conversation and and thinking about Britain in a new light. So kind of championing and thinking about those complexities and and us all doing that together. (laughs) Um, And my final thing is I just want to say about this idea of improving people's material lives. And I think young people have rightfully got a lot of stick, this snowflake generation and things, but I also think we have to remember that for a lot of young people, the labour market has fundamentally shifted, and we haven't actually been able to rise to some of the economic um, complexities that young people are facing. For example, back in the day, you could leave um, school without, without a diploma, get a job, and that would be enough to feed your entire family. A lot of young people, you, if you'll be lucky if you do a degree and get an average um, paid job and get on the housing ladder and things like that. So I think that as much as um, it's frustrating, the kind of narratives that are being imposed on young people, I think when we're not meeting those genuine economic frustrations, it becomes more susceptible for them to receive a lot of these simplistic notions about... Utopian socialist ideals. So, I think we need to raise the level of debate ultimately and not be fearful of the Tory ATC majority. I think, in this space of relative relative stability, this is the kind of space where we can really flesh out um, the complexities of what has been exposed through Brexit.
1: Uh, Excellent point. I think that point about complexity as well is just so important that we don't have to lower ourselves to their standards. Um, uh, Yasmin.
5: Yes. Wow. Where do we go from here? What an amazing day it's been. What an amazing range of people and opinions we have in the room. And yet, what a strange sense of consensus I'm starting to feel. Very, very interesting. We've had a declaration... Um, I thought we might like a a six-point plan, but not really. Um, This is my bid to you of what I think has come out of today and also some of the things I thought came out of my own experience of standing as a Brexit Party candidate not so long ago. And really, it's over to you to tell me what you think. But some of the things that have come out of today, well, certainly something I've learned is let's not get too hung up on constitutional reform. As someone said, it's a bit of a third-order issue. It doesn't take priority. The most important thing is that whichever government's in power, we will need to hold them to account. Secondly, we should be prepared to cross some political boundaries. And I think one of the things that's been most interesting about Boris Johnson is that he's been prepared to do just that and um, take a bit of flap for doing it. But there's a man who's moved from being in a government of austerity to spend, 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 and big public works. Why? Because he can see which way the political wind is blowing. And in his case, because he wants to defend and, and um, extend the life of his political party. Well, we also have priorities, and I think we also need to be thinking about maybe some of the old shibboleths that we need to ditch in the interest of moving forward. Thirdly, you know those political parties are more fragile than they look, and nothing demonstrated that more than when 17.4 million people simply chose to ignore everything they were told and vote absolutely against everything that they were asked. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that. It all might look pretty stable, but just remember, they're more fragile than they look. And the outside world might be, or the BBC might be talking about gender fluidity, but I think here today we've been talking about party political fluidity and the extent to which the electorate has been prepared to vote in ways that I don't think many of us would have predicted. (coughs) I don't think I believed, before it happened, that so many Labour Party voters in the (coughs) North would literally go and vote Tory um, simply on the brines of... Well, all the things that we've already discussed people are prepared to do unimaginable things that that they've never done before and I think that begins to suggest that there are new openings that, that we should all be looking at and I think if we're going to look at these new openings one of the things that I think we've really got to do is ditch our old preoccupation with right and left politics yeah. 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 I'm glad you're doing it. it's two, really two things have happened first of all the right wing party and the left wing party that we used to know simply don't exist in that form anymore yes. because actually as we know more middle class people voted for the Labour Party yes. than, than working class and so the whole thing is in flux yeah. and we really can't rely on those old <laughs> definitions and those old certainties <laughs> equally when people, uh, interesting, I, I read some interesting stuff from YouGov. People who self-identify as left-wing and right-wing, and in fact the majority of people identify as neither. But even of the people who identify as left and right-wing, there's actually a huge political overlap in what they, in what they believe in. And I think it's our preoccupation with me- Westminster politics that leads us to ignore what in fact is happening, which is that there are huge political overlaps (laughs) between what used to be here and here. It's not there and there anymore. There are all kinds of shared common concerns. And of course, I find that out first and foremost through the Brexit party, because that's the first time I've ever been in the same room as conservatives and actually had a joint venture a shared ambition and a shared political project and you know there are more of those and I was looking at what some of the what the you found and so on the one hand you have this overlap between um, conservative and labour voters or people who identify as such um, on things like immigration but also on the minimum wage and you wouldn't necessarily expect conservatives to be in favour of a decent minimum wage Criminal justice, something that <clears throat> really is an interest that spans both ends of the spectrum, what used to be a spectrum. At the same time, nationalising some key um, sort of parts of the um, um, economy, like you know, the train system and so on. These are shared concerns. These are things that actually move beyond right and left politics. So maybe we need to think less about these old left-right divisions and look more at some of the issues that um that yeah. <laughs> so we share, some of our shared preoccupations. And you know that's been borne out today here, hasn't it? We've had we've had right wing, we've had red what is it? Red, Red Tories Tory. and Blue Labour and the Brexit Party and people of no political persuasion actually sharing a lot in common. And I think that's something that we need to take account of and move forward on. All of this suggests to me that space has opened up for what I would describe as a popular radical agenda. Something where we focus on the common ground, not what divides us but much of the common ground that we share, right across what used to be the spectrum, people of all political persuasions and of none, I think there is room for a popular, radical politics. Now, the Labour Party could see this, but they couldn't (coughs) articulate it in a way that anyone believed. But the Labour Party sought, the Conservative Party sought, which is why they felt the need to ditch so many of their old guard and move in a new direction, but that political ground is still there. And I think we've got to continue what we started. We started this, let's continue. Democracy matters. That's how that's that's what we find out in the course of the last elections. That's what the referendum was about. Respecting the electorate still matters, or this, or citizens or indeed subjects, as we've learned we need to recall ourselves sometimes. Defining political characteristics are no longer class. Or race or gender. That's not to say that there isn't racism, that's not to say there aren't gender-based issues, that's not to say there aren't issues around being a worker um, as opposed to a boss, but these things do not define us politically in the way that they used to and we need to think about that and move on. So how do we best express that? Through what organisation do we best express that? Well I think today and before people have been cautious about saying we need a political party right now. I think what we need to do is we need to demonstrate a new type of leadership in our own localities. I think that means working in our own localities, developing networks of trust, working on some of these issues that we've we've looked at, which are um, commonly held and which are popular and which are important and which are democratic. And yes, old political allegiances will get in the way, And there will be people who are in the Labour Party or the Conservative Party who think we can't tread on their ground, or that this is too right-wing or too (coughs) left-wing. Forget them. We've seen some of the challenges that we do have, and they've been raised today: freedom of speech, challenging the university's consensus that's sort of drip-feeding our our children. Some of the cultural organisations, the BBC is only a sort of, uh, you know, the most the most prominent one. Virtually all our cultural organisations are run by people who probably don't share a view of a post-Brexit Britain that we do, which is that it's one that's exciting and forward-looking. So I think we need to attract Democrats from political parties of the right and left and and of no political party. And I think that's how we really do change politics for good. Thank you.
1: Excellent, Yasmin. Some, some really uh, strong ideas emerging now. Um, so, Brian, finish us off.
6: Thank you, Claire. Um, it's very good of you to invite me to uh, give my thoughts. Uh, I'm going to cut straight to the chase uh, and disagree with some uh, speakers uh, here and in the floor that I've heard today and say, I think if you really want to find a campaign that will uh, find a great deal of support with the British people, it is to go and say, we're going to abolish the House of Lords. And the reason I say that, and abolish is a loose term, I would actually keep a second chamber, but I think there is a real appetite to drain the swamp, or at least one of the swamps. Because people are mad, people are mad as hell, to borrow a phrase from a very good film, about the role that the lords played. And it was not a role unusual to the lords because the lords are part of the establishment and they are uh, the establishment that's, that, that just regenerates itself. Uh, dare I say the name Ollie Robbins. Yes. So I, I do think it, at last people saw the potential for harm that the lords could provide within our body politic. Uh, I'd, I'd recommend that we work up uh, across parties and, and any new parties uh, a campaign that would seek to abolish the lords in its current form it's the most easily drained part of uh, of the, 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 the swamp uh, it's a boil uh, on the body politic that it can be most easily lanced and the way that that's possible is because most people see its failings they're visible let's be honest it is corruption uh, there at the heart of our politics. Politicians buy other politicians off by giving them peerages. Now there's many people in this room that know how close that went in the general election with the Brexit Party being offered behind the scenes peerages that, thank you Brexit Party, were all turned down. But that did go on. Don't doubt it for a minute. The Tory party was really worried and the way they felt they could try and deal with it was to offer peerages uh, to a number of our politicians. But of course, peerages are also offered by buying them. Uh, I remember my time in the Conservative Party in Scotland. There was a running joke about a particular wealthy businessman who was giving about a million pound a year. And, 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 and every year when the, uh, the announcements of life peerages from uh, politicians was coming up, uh, the Scottish Tories party said, please don't give it to him, don't give it to him, he'll stop giving us money. <laughs> uh, as soon as he gets a peerage, he, he, the money will dry up, we'll be finished. <laughs> and it goes on, and it goes on in every party. Don't, don't think it doesn't go on in every party, it's just the Tories. It goes on in every party. Wealthy donors become peers. And they know that, and this is, again, a way of invading into our political life. And so we, we, have, we have this swamp where the, the serpents spawn more serpents, and it just goes on, there seems to be no end to it. Uh, and, and, you know, you can't get rid of them. You can't get rid of these people no bad, however bad their performance is. They can only resign, and that's a recent thing, by the way. They can only resign... When I was in the Scottish Parliament, we had Mike Watson, a a former uh, Labour Minister for Culture, who, at an event I was attending, uh, set fire to a curtain in the reception and was eventually charged and convicted with arson. (laughs) Uh, It's a true story. Uh, He served time, uh, but he did not resign. At that point, he he wasn't allowed to resign. uh, But that law changed, but he he still uh, did not resign. In fact, he then became a shadow minister. Uh, for, for a Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, you could not make this up. But there was absolutely no way that anyone could move a motion to sack him. And that's still the case. Another Lord Watson could come along and commit some heinous crime and could not be forced out. It, and there's, there's no, no shame. Uh, so, so the public are beginning to see these things. And, and with the manipulation of our democracy by people like John, John Berkel, for whom I apologise... Uh, I gave him his first speaking platforms and uh, conservative students um, uh, they, you know, with, with people being seen to obstruct the views without a democratic mandate uh, there's I believe a, 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 a real sense of something needs to change there now of course people do think and I understand this rationale that it's not important enough we should, we should, we've got to focus on other things like health and education and, and all the social issues and economic issues and I get that But so long as we allow this situation to continue, we actually undermine our ability to change those things that we feel dearly about. And I tell you something, the thing that really, really scared the Tory party, and I was very glad to be part of, was the fact that they lost, not just lost seats, but fell to 9% in those European elections. That was the existential threat to them when they saw they didn't even get double figures. And that changed the whole attitude. Not just that, you know, Christ, we need to do something. It was, send for Boris! Uh, <laughs> those, those, those MPs who had never wanted Boris before, and they were, the, they were the bulwark against him ever being leader, suddenly changed their minds. And that's what the Brexit Party helped achieve. And what I believe firmly is that... Changing the Lords to a mainly, and I'm, I'm open to discussion and ideas, a mainly elected chamber would change that because it would be an existential threat to the way parties are run at the moment that they can't buy people off with, uh, with the uh, opportunity to be a peer or to uh, take money uh, from, from successful business people. I also think there's positives. I'll just finish on the positives, but there's a real need to give more voices to people throughout the rest of the UK, through institutions, uh, to bind the union together uh, following some of the damage that has uh, come unexpectedly to to some uh, from devolution. Uh, so, So we need to find new ways of pulling more people in to serve from rest around the country, give more people voices and I think in reforming the Lords you can do that. Not just in the voices where they come from, but by taking the Lords, the new Senate, or whatever it would be, to the people themselves. There's no reason it has to be in London. There's no reason it has to be even fixed in one place. It could be a completely new way of doing politics. So I think both for removing that boil, for draining that swamp, to mix my metaphors, uh, but also for the positives that could come. You could have PR for electing the people in that house. I actually think, Uh, there's a really strong campaign that could be built up, uh, uh, could influence uh, across the parties and it could become a single issue that uh, many people in this room uh, could get behind. Thank you.
5: Right. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. So listen, we've got PR and abolish the House of Lords kind of big constitutional questions kind of on this side. And but we've also got the kind of free speech culture wars uh, here, and I thought that, and then Yasmin making a very good case, and it's a uh, it's something I've thought a lot about uh, in terms of are we kind of just clinging on to those left right labels in a way that actually a- ends up as a barrier? And just to say something on that, which is I think Im- important to note, which is in some ways I myself became one of the people, uh, Henrik, another, others as defined as a a left-wing Brexit Party candidate. But that was because Brexit was... There was an attempt at delegitimising Brexit as a uh, far-right body. And so you end up having to play this game, and I kind of, like, became more of a lefty in public than I had been for 20 years. (laughs) And everyone said, you know, what's it like, revolutionary Communist Party to Brexit Party? I said there was a 20-year gap. But... (laughs) But... I was also trying to illustrate that it wasn't a left-wing or a right-wing thing. It was all of us. But yet, somehow, you get tangled in these labels. So, it's an interesting dilemma. Now, over to you. I wanted to just note that there's a lot of different organisations here. Um, you know, one of the organisations, if I can just mention a, a, a Bolton for Change that have just uh, set up, uh, who are sort of ex-Brexit by, who are standing in local council elections. Obviously, there's new uh, there's political bodies like the SDP here. Uh, there's uh, the Salon Network, who, who've got uh, uh, regular discussion groups. There's obviously this Democrats, uh, London Democrats, launching their Stockport Declaration. There's a lot of new initiatives and part of the thing that I wanted to talk about in politics was how are we going to keep in touch? You know, people have said to me, are you going to declare a political party at the end of this? No. Right? Is the Brexit party going to carry on with this? No. I don't know. Open to suggestions. But it's kind of over to you. For the last 35 minutes or so... Give us your thoughts on anything you've heard, anything you want to say about today. Uh, it just And by the way, it's the last session today, but I hope it's just the start of a national conversation. So we'll take as many as we can. Right. So, we're, sorry we're, sorry to make everyone... Right. So if I can start with that gentleman there. Yeah. Hello. I'd,
7: I'd just like to <coughs> suggest that um, Henrik Overgaard Nielsen's... Um, Minimising of uh, Paul Schofield's coming out <laughs> as being trivial is not correct. In fact, it's a moral question. We are not homophobic, are we? And the, uh, as somebody,
2: I wasn't it way suggested? No, no, no. It's all right. no we're defensive. It's, no, not, not,
7: a, it's not a moral issue <laughs> about declaring us not. The country is not homophobic. And okay. As was suggested upstairs by the speaker for the for Brexit people, is that the Labour Party has become a moralistic party. It's basically going for fairness and care. And, uh, uh, and, and there are five. we're going to the five pillars of abstract pillars of morality, which I've just made, I've nearly finished. I'm nearly finished. All I want to suggest Next. is that this is a moral battle, much more important than anything else. And morality is a simplifying factor that enables us to see that the people must be, be the people must be be the, the authority for their country.
1: Thank you very yeah. much indeed. Sorry, I wasn't trying to. I was telling you to speak into the microphone, not shut up. Um, so when you get the microphone, speak into it. Right, yes, that lady there.
8: Hi, Claire. I think really at the moment now, as far as... I, I was the PPC for uh, Lancaster and Fleetwood. I think nothing really fundamentally for us where we are has changed everything has remained exactly the same. What we have, where we are, is people are now politically homeless. We've got to find something now that's going to drive us forward, because what we're seeing, I mean, I phoned the Electoral Commission last week, they are seeing huge droves and huge numbers of micro-parties now being set up. This isn't just about the one in Bolton. This, the, the, and and there's, some of them have got crazy names, but they absolutely don't see where they're going to fit in. And I think now we need to stop looking at who's left, who's right. We all came together on our platform of you being from where you came from, 23 years from me being the Conservative Party, you know, people from UKIP, people from Labour. I think now we're going to have to all pull together, like we have done in a common purpose, like we did for Brexit, and not have this division of who's in what party. And I think... People saying, let's not do something now, let's wait, let's wait. No, let's not wait. We have a movement now. We need something to go forward now. Not in 12 months' time. Not in 12 months' time. And the people, honestly, are there. And I think we just need to... We have, we have the number of people that spoiled their ballot papers this time. What are we going to do? Bring them into a new section now where they're just going to continue to do this and just be in the land of nowhere. We can't let them down now. We've brought them all this way now and we need to get them somewhere
1: new. OK, thank you. Um, right, so that you, you stand. The microphone goes there afterwards. Yes, I, I'd
8: like to echo the ladies' comments,
5: which are absolutely what everybody feels, I think, at the moment. And um, I, I think... The Tories, okay, they've already been, they've been in power now for, shall we say, two months, okay? Fifteen grand day, which was paid by for you-know-who, okay? He's now given the go-ahead, which most of the Tories said they didn't want, HS2. It was started off at 30 billion ten years ago. It's now 106 billion. It's gone up 60 billion in six months. How can that possibly be? You know, I'm, did we vote for that? Did we allow that? That is money that is just going to cronies, basically. And it's wrong. And,
9: you know, now he's, tell, the, 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 he's showing his true colours. And, and that is going to be downfall. And there's an opportunity now for another party to come along. The Labour is in a mess. And a party of, of common ground. and not personal <laughs> device.
1: Okay, thank you. Uh, that, I, I'm going to take somebody over there. All, all I was just going to say was... I think that we all, I think many of us think that. All I'm saying is, this conference isn't going to declare one. That was all I was saying, right? So, uh, anyone wants to set one up, well, I might join not? it. <laughs> no, because you can't just do that, and that's the issue. But, all I'm saying is, I, I hope now we've established, it would be great if there was another political party. I'm just pointing out, no, I agree. But all I'm saying is, We've now said that. We can't keep saying that in this last session because it's also, how do you make that happen? So there's a lady there and then that gentleman there. Stand up, sir, and then I'll let the microphone come to you and then we'll go to you. Yeah.
10: I'd like to know what Brian thinks about the uh, start reform of the House of Lords getting rid of the whipping system and the parties <laughs> by having, well, making them actually illegal to actually try and promote the parties within the House of Lords when a bill comes up from the House of Commons about a particular issue, let's say animal welfare, the Lords that have expertise in animal welfare put their names down on the list, the other members of the House of Lords vote on which ones of those members who have an interest in that subject can go into the Lords Committee, come back with their recommendations, and then it's voted for in the House of Lords.
1: Okay, Right, thank you. So this is what I'm going to do. So if if that microphone... The person you speak has got it. I'm going to take those two gentlemen over there after you, sir. Then I'm coming back to the panel. Then I'm going to start with you. Yeah, that's the way we're doing it. Right, carry on.
11: Um, My name's David O'Toole. I'm a trade unionist. I work as a trade union organiser. I think uh, the guy in this tartan shirt there mentioned a group that I thought was great. Uh, uh, Protect our children from, what was it? Protect children from being scared. being scared in schools. Yeah, um, I wrote a blog post. I've become very interested in the extinction rebellion phenomenon. I wrote a blog post, and created a leaflet saying, uh, if I were your teacher, this is what I would tell them, and uh, told, put them my point of view that you know we were living in a better world, you know, and it was getting better all the time. Um, over a period of a fortnight, I had about six phone calls, so I became a little bit of an agony aunt <coughs> with concerned parents from around the country ringing me up, particularly on the south coast, Brighton and places like that, saying um, their children were being frightened and bullied in school because one parent right. said that their child had been told, um, if your mother doesn't give up her car, by the time you're 21, you'll be dead. Right? Another one sent me a photograph of the fact that um, she had... Uh, a gable end of a house that was painted with an Extinction Rebellion logo with a hyena very professionally done but something, the sort of thing that you'd see on Bogside and I've just discovered that there is a now I hate this sounds like a conspiracy theory, right, but the UN sponsors something called Climate Change Teachers, there's a map on, YouTube, uh, map, map on Google Maps of all of, uh, the climate change teachers that are embedded in schools throughout the country, there's over three or 400 of them
1: uh, thank you very much indeed. Right, yes, sir. Uh,
12: i just like to um, support Henrik's point about getting involved in local councils, in parish councils. I think it's a point well made. Um, we'll all find different ways of getting the politics that we've talked about here today across and uh, in, in different situations in different contexts. This is a good context. There are 20,000 local councillors in this country in the big authorities, in 343 big authorities, local authorities there are 100,000 councillors in the 20,000 parish and community councils in this country and that's the, the boasted figure that is put up, I bet you there's many uh, many fewer of those people in, in those particular councils and not getting involved it's a great opportunity to get involved and particularly this time the previous government, one of the last things it did was dole out 25 million pounds to 101 towns uh, seen as uh, towns in need of a little boost and those the, the government has put it out those councils, both the local authorities and the parish and community councils have been encouraged to get involved in how that 25 billion is spent and for example Stockport, Rochdale Bolton, Preston you know, these are all, all, all in, in local ones and 101 throughout so there's a good opportunity for us to get involved now
1: OK, thank you. And to the person who had their hands up, thank you. Sorry, I don't want to stop people clapping, yeah. Um, and then uh, t- take a couple of things afterwards, after this one. Yeah, yeah.
9: I think, once I still come back to this problem of, I think, uh, as Ian mentioned, the uh, BBC. I mean, in theory, it sounds great at reform, but we've been saying it for 10, 20 plus years. It's not a reform. It's London, metropolitan progressive to its core. It's not obvious what you can do to redeem that. Ditto the same for a whole quanguocracy of organisations across Britain. They are filled, packed to the rafters, with people of the same ideological worldview. If you can't reform and clear out those and get somebody of a more socially co- conservative, culturally conservative bent in, we're just going to get the same results from this tier of the state, this apparatus of the state that's dropping the same messages. In. It in. There's got to be something bigger and better done about that.
2: OK, Henry, pick up any couple of points. OK, thank you very much. Um, just talking to Brian about it, it's the wrong way we are seated here. We seem to be very white male and stale on this side of the <laughs> table. But um, No, just uh, starting still. on the London-centric <laughs> part of it, I, I absolutely agree, and it is a Westminster bubble you've got in there. There are several problems with it. I I live in Wandsworth and during the referendum campaign we needed to have sort of secret handshakes or something like that if you were a lever. Uh, That was the the, the most remain area in the country. But it becomes a bubble and it, it particularly becomes a bubble when the official opposition seems to be concentrating not on working classes but actually on universities and big cities and and yummy mummies in Southwest London, really. Uh, and and I think that that is a problem. Um, the question about declaring a new party, and I think we are all frustrated. We all want to do something, and we want to get on with it. The problem is how to go about it. And as Claire says, this is not about declaring a new party. This is not what this is about. But it is about us all getting together, talking about it, and see what you know. Let the thousand flowers bloom, I I, is probably what I think where we should head with this. So let people do things in Bolton. Let Leanne do something in in, in Fleetwood. Let people around that are interested in these things do whatever they see fit to do. I'm I'm a little bit worried that if we try and do something, you know, very top heavy and we need to do it nationally, we're gonna fail. And I actually think with this, you know, change politics for good actually what we want to do is from doing from the bottom up, not from the top down, so let the thousand flowers bloom okay, great, thank
6: you Uh, firstly on the whipping issue um, this may sound odd coming from a former whip but uh, I'm very much for trying to reduce the influence that parties have in, within in institutions uh, I, I actually honestly don't think we would ever be able to get to a way uh, of uh, preventing parties forming uh, I don't think it's even right to say that people should not have parties uh, it becomes a, 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 a freedom of association and a freedom of speech issue uh, if people want to group together and advocate issues together but I do think there are institutional uh, avenues that can be closed down uh, that uh, can begin to make change possible, and I've seen the abuse of institutional uh, manipulation of rules um, uh, that the that, that parties can can connive together, uh, not just for them, themselves, but together to keep other parties out. Uh, and I think we need to uh, give more more time and and, and uh, expose that um, in the sense of of. Creating parties, uh, which might sound odd, having talked about trying to reduce their uh, influence, um, is I, 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 an amazingly difficult thing. It is not easy. Um, there are over 300 registered parties the last time I looked, a couple of years ago. There are probably more than a good deal more than that now. The formation of the Brexit party was... Uh, Unbelievable, but it was down essentially to the conjunction of two things, the coming European elections uh, and Nigel Farage. Without without the figurehead, it would have been very difficult for Richard Tice to say, well, there's a European election coming up, get behind me. And Uh, um, it just wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened. No matter how often Richard, God bless his cotton socks, was on question time, it wouldn't have happened. It needed somebody like that. People keep saying to me, oh, we need a new party in Scotland because the Tories aren't going to beat Labour or the SNP, but we need to get rid of SNP. It needs a figurehead to do it, and that's why there's not going to be any change, and SNP are more likely to stay in power. So you need that person, that kind of makes it hard because broadcasters tend to focus on that person. They like personalities, they like challenging, and then they can get the balance by putting somebody against that person. And, and, and so you need the conjunction of the immediacy of what's coming up, and we've just had a general election, so we don't quite have that, but if, there's a, if, <coughs> if some issue really upset people, then that might give you that point, and then... The Messiah figure, the, the person who uh, comes forward and says, I can uh, change this for you. Um, so, meanwhile, we have to build up the, the support on issues until those two things, I think, are available to us. Right, very good. Thank you. Well, thank
3: you. Yeah, I agree with um, what's just been said. I think that if we look at the kind of two non-establishment parties that have made quite significant impact over the last few years, well, that's UKIP and the Brexit Party. UKIP took quite a long time to build that support over years and years. And the Brexit Party, as has already been said, had a significant figurehead. It really captured the spirit of the moment. And so I think that um, we can often underestimate how significant it is to actually really be an insurgent party and, and really capture that um, moment but I think that um, as Hendricks said I think that um, going forward after such a momentous occasion like Brexit I think we need to really look at how we can embed um, the change in culture and I think that when we think about that that's where the kind of grassroots things do come up like we've been speaking about forming these organisations tapping into the existing networks that are already there um, continue on debating and discussing um, and participating in local politics. I think that when we um, start that ground well, then if something significant changes, then we're ready to capture that and tackle into Yeah,
1: great. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. Thanks.
5: Yeah, we need more leaders. We can't just keep going back to Nadia Farage. We need more leaders. And how do you get leaders? Well, you can elect them, but actually, real leadership is forged in activity. That's how you gain the trust of the people around you. That's how you build something around yourself, is if you step forward and a few more people step forward, suddenly you've got something going on. And, you know, bear in mind that we're in a position at the moment where people are in... Many, many, many of us are embarrassed to tell people that we voted leave still. Many people come to me and will say, don't tell anyone that I voted Brexit, but please don't tell because I might lose my job or, I, uh, you know, it, uh, it won't look good on my CV. So, you know, um, I think we're quite a long way from having built the kind of leadership we'd like to see around us. And if not us, then who? And where do we do that? Well, you know, I think you start, you start where, where you're at. And it doesn't mean we all have to be councillors by the Mm -hmm. way. I think some people would make great councillors and maybe some of us wouldn't but there are many many other things to be done and you know just to take one example of things that are happening at the moment environmentalism is a huge issue we can't walk away from but there are really practical things going on where people like us are needed. There's floods going on in parts of Wales and England and people are talking about climate change as if there isn't an issue around um, uh, dams and and, and, you know the, the kind of things you build to stop the water penetrating in the first place What's happening with water management in Britain? These are not my areas of expertise, but I bet you amongst us we do have people who, if they're not experts now, can become experts and can speak out on these matters. In London, we've got all kinds of consultation going on about air quality. Well, you know and I know who ends up being consulted. It's the same people. It's the same people who who, who pitch up to meetings at 2 o'clock in the afternoon when everyone else is at work or they're busy picking up their child from childcare. You know... If we're going to consult, we've got to make sure that everyone is actually consulted. How do we do that? Well, maybe we need to take some of that into our own hands, and maybe we need to start reporting back on what people really think about yeah. some of the things that really matter locally on big national issues such as environmentalism, which actually, at a, a local level, mm-hmm. take a really, really practical form. So, I don't think it's, it's I don't think it's, it's, it's kind of. Uh, really hard to work out what to do I think the thing is we've got to realize that we've got to do it mm-hmm. and that we've got to step forward and, and you know make our voice heard in the hope that other people will join us
1: mm-hmm. Okay brilliant okay. Right. That, that gentleman's got, got the microphone there's that lady there and then I'll go to you so where's the microphone Yeah, you speak. Yeah, Yeah,
13: yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with much of what the panel have just said. Uh, There was a comment earlier on about um, being politically homeless. Um, I must say, for most of my adult life, I've felt politically homeless in that I've not been a member of a political party for most of my adult life. Um, But that doesn't mean that I've not been involved in things politically, it doesn't mean that I've not been involved in campaigns. Um, And I think there is a real danger that what we do. What some people might do is look for a technical solution to what is a political problem. And I think the first thing we need to do is start discussing what the political problems are. And I think this conference is great in terms of of doing that. Um, Just one small anecdote, uh, I'm I'm involved in trade unions, I'm involved in organising people in in work. Um, One of my friends told me once about they were trying to set up a trade union and trying to set up a trade union meeting. Um, not realising that just down the corridor there was a group of workers who were involved in setting up an anti-management Christmas party. Um, and you've got to kind of be, you know, I mean that's the kind of, you know, serious thing about in terms of, you know, don't look for the, the obvious solution, you know, to what the problem might be because actually you might miss what's going on, you know, just around, just around the corner. We've all got our own skills in terms of what we can do in terms of either leading a campaign or being a councillor. Those are the sorts of things that we can be involved in. And you know, just look for the opportunities to make you know, points about freedom of speech, about democracy, wherever and whenever we can.
1: Uh, thank you very much. Okay, now this... Right, at the back... Okay, somebody at the back has got the microphone, and then that microphone to come to the front. Yes, okay, we're getting someone. Yes.
14: Yeah, I just want to say thank you for today, because I actually didn't know what to expect. Uh, I'm a uh, ex-PPBC, uh, stood at Halton... Um, so I didn't know whether I expected that he would launch a party or what we would do, but what I'm taking away from here is that every single person in this room has got a responsibility to actually go ahead and change politics for good. We shouldn't be relying on individuals perhaps like South Clare or Henrik, it's really up to us to start taking the movement on a local level. So, for me, I, I feel really renewed. I'm going to go back to my constituency and I'm going to start organising regular monthly meetings. And we're a bit of luck, watch YouTube, we're going to do something different. Because it's about us having a voice, every one of us.
1: That's it. All I can say is <clears throat> if that's all that comes out of today, job done. Yeah, absolutely.
15: Anna Bailey, former Brexit party, EU candidate. Um, I couldn't agree more with Yasmin about the point of left wing and right wing now being completely outdated terms. Um, That's something that my experience in the Brexit party has taught me. It's really interesting that there's actually a whole (laughs) academic literature on Euroscepticism. And when I read it and found out that the literature universally agrees that Euroscepticism has no core concept, which means there's nothing that unites Eurosceptics apart from opposition to the EU. Now you could have knocked me down with a feather when I read that, it's quite obviously written by, no Eurosceptics had any involvement in writing this literature, because to me it was like really self-evident that the thing that unites us all is a belief in democracy. And that's certainly been proven today. And actually, I think there's other things that unites us, which, again, from my involvement with the Brexit party, from following people like Claire, Henrik, and many others, um, and the experience of today, there's various things that I would say unites us all, um, just a few examples, a belief in the importance of free speech, even if some people get offended, and um, Say there's lots of
1: others now. <laughs> it's all right. Um, That'll do. Yeah. <laughs> no, carry on. Carry on.
15: House of Lords. Well, we've had some disagreements on that, haven't we? Um, but yeah, definitely free speech. Definitely about listening to people. Um, not being overly ideological about things. Um, there's many, many more. Um, But I I think that's basically proving Yasmin's point about the the concept of left and right being outdated. And as Claire said, it it becomes a barrier if we start to think in those terms. So we've got to move Mm -hmm. beyond these simple definitions.
1: All right, thank you very much indeed. Right, someone's got the microphone at the back. Right, you're... Are you trying to speak as well? Yes. Yes, Um, right. Grab the 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 microphone and then speak and then pass it to the person behind you after you've spoken. Yes, carry on.
4: William Cluston, Social Democratic Party. Um... Years ago, this was a big party, and, and then it got knocked to the grassroots. The reason it's grown rapidly, and obviously it's, it was tiny, and we've got a couple of thousand people convened now, the reason it's grown is that people looked out on the political landscape and didn't like what they saw. And I think you can have any number of think tanks or blogs or anything you like, but in the end, you've got to have a political vehicle, you've got to have a political vehicle, and a political vehicle is a political party. We wouldn't appeal to everyone in the Brexit party, but are quite lefty on sort of economics. But for those that like our sort of politics, and it is a mix, it's a red-blue type of politics. We've got, we love Morris, and we love, we, I, I like Philip Lund as well. We have our own particular side, it's quite statey. But if you like that sort of politics, pick up a, a new declaration. And if you like it, join us. And it's, it's, that's, I think there is a role for political parties. You can, you can have as many think tanks as you like.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, uh, Yes, person has got a mic. Yeah, you've got it, yeah.
9: Yeah. First, I want to say uh, from Wales, thank you very much, you and Henrik, for uh, hosting this conference. It's been fantastic. I think for me, today's not about uh, forming a political party, but forming a coalition of people who are like minded. Mm A lot of the people I've spoken to, the conversations I've had, it's very clear that even though we come from different political spectrums, there's some similarities that we all have on freedom of speech. democracy and all those issues. And I want to ask you, and Henry, please, would you do something like this in Wales? Would you come down to God's own country? <laughs> <laughs> a land that is beautiful and we would put on a fantastic venue for you. We'd love you to come down. Because I'm sure that as many people have found, especially in Wales, people feel like political refugees at the moment. Many of those, especially those of the Brexit party, who have not gone with Labour not definitely, but with the Conservatives certainly they feel as if they're hopeless and I've experienced it I'm quite secure with it myself I'm okay living where I am in Africa of any however a lot of people do and I think something like this is, is needed right at the moment not to form a political party but simply a coalition of people from different parties whether it's the you know the SDP, the Social Democrats and the other parties that have represented you to come together to talk and debate because this is not a talking shop as you said. This has been insightful, it's been re- it's been a revelation to me, and I've really learned a lot from it. And I know I'll go back to you as a much better person after this conference. So
1: thank <laughs> you very much. Um, to you, just to, just to say something directly in response to that, which is the legendary Jim Murray. Oh there she is. The legendary June Mummery, um, the most amazing force of nature. Well, stand up, June. Give it, take a bow. Yay! Former MVP. But well, she said in one of the other sessions, she said, oh, I think, uh, uh, Henrik, and you should take this on tour. Um, yes. It is also true that we've both got a life, by the way, as of the But anyway, what I, to, what I wanted to say was, I, I hope that this will inspire other events, and I'm sure that uh, not just Henrik and I, but other people will be interested in putting them on. It, it does have to be said; it does take some organising and it takes some money. And I'm not—this is not a fundraiser. We, we paid for it, but bear that in mind, right? This has not happened overnight, and therefore, any—I think going forward, I want more and more of these. But I'm just drawing your attention to some practical realities, right? Which is is that you can't just kind of declare them and they happen. But the reason I've interjected to say that is because I think that it's important that this is a one-off that inspires, but there's also some practical things that can come out of today in terms of, I hope, a network of us we wanted to launch Change Politics for Good Network with like a proper website and everything, but we just haven't got the resources. But the reason I'm saying that is because I do think we should all keep in touch and I think something will come out of it. Now, that was just an interject... That was like my advert to interject. Um, yes? Uh,
4: yeah, uh, my name's Tom Ruddock, a uh, university student. <laughs> much derided, but uh, uh, <laughs> you can work out whether indoctrinated or not. But I wanted to make a point about um, identity politics um, but I think Inaya brought up the point uh, perfectly well that actually uh, identity politics I think is probably here to stay I think the new cleavages of, of, of political life are established now it's not just left and right, there's allocation of values now um, uh, but how do we navigate that and I think dismissing it um, as you know, campus nutters is, is a wholly useless way of, of, of actually navigating they have a uh, a question that's valid, you know, there are inequalities in in, in social life uh, to do with gender and race. How do we, you know, navigate that without this victimhood uh, uh, you know, thing? Now, the one way that I can see of doing that is reaffirming the idea of the individual and, and, and personal agency, because obviously it's clear that the individual is the ultimate minority. So, I mean, in, in that sense, you can engage with the same ideas um, but I think there's a tension then, with, which I haven't worked out in my head, and I was wondering if you could maybe speak to it: is uh, a tension between individual individualism and, and, and community. That that uh, you know, economic individualism, I think, individualism has been pretty terrible for uh, a lot of people. atomization of people. Um, so how do we how do we situate, reaffirm the individual, but situate them in the community in a, in a positive way?
1: Okay, thank you. God, that's the question of a lifetime, and it's really—it's <laughs> no, like the question that actually we do have to be able to resolve, and we haven't got time to necessarily do now. Right, so I'm—I'm going to drag it on a little bit later, even though we're keeping you all from the bar. But I'm going to just try and get as many people in, and then I'll bring the panel in. So, right, so I've got over there, and I've got there and there. Right, so where's where's the other microphone? Right. Okay. Yes. Okay. Oh, bloody hell. Right. Quick. <laughs>
16: Hi. So I heard somebody say earlier about how hard it is to say that you voted for Brexit, etc., etc. Um, I just wanted to speak to that for sort of ten seconds, really. to Say I don't think there could be anything more dangerous, really. Um, I did eight hustings as a PPC for the Brexit Party, four were educational institutions, four were uh, business ones, or whatever else. That's every every educational one. Um, the choice of what questions and who would ask them and what they were were made by uh, lecturers, headteachers, teachers, etc. On two occasions, I happened to get sight of that list, and it was very clear how the social selection of what questions we would be asked was done. And I think the point I'm getting to, whether we're parents, grandparents, brothers, sisters, friends, we've got to talk, we've got to put the alternative view out, and we've got to be really, really proud of what we're saying because there is a force which we are out of control, you have no control over, that at the moment is um, directing the way the future is going to go, and we, we need to do something about that.
1: Yeah, well said. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the, I think the
10: concept, one, of, one of the consequences of, of outsourcing our sovereignty for decades has been the decay and the, the weakening and the rotting away of local democratic, local democracy, local democratic and public institutions. They really have just weakened and fallen away. And I think that we said in the previous discussion that we have the will to take back democratic control, to be- rebuild sovereignty, um, but we need a vehicle And the vehicle doesn't just come down from the heavens. It's not just going to appear. We have to build it. And the institutions and the local democratic and public institutions that used to, that should belong to us, um, that's where we build it. So we really, I think, have to take control of our our public life, of our local life and of our democratic life. And I think that the the idea of of getting involved in parish councils is, is great. Also, I'd just like to plug... That there are local networks like the salon networks. I run the Liverpool. I'm one of the people that runs the Liverpool salon, and we talk about this all the time. We are actually talking about local democracy and local development and how people can, can take control of the planning system in uh, in May of this year. So please get hold of our material, and anyone who's in Liverpool or Leeds or any of these cities where they have salons, get involved and take part in more and more of these. Conversations and arguments, and let's get our views and our narratives out there and take back control of the arguments that we need
1: to be having. Okay, uh, I, okay, uh, thank you. I, I'm not going to be able to take very many people, I'm sorry. So I've got you, I've got the person at the back, yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: so sorry, uh, my name's Matthew Pack and I was an MEP. I, I just want to make an observation and a suggestion. The, op- the observation is um, it didn't seem like at the time. But actually looking back just four weeks ago to what happened with Brexit and the Brexit Party, I think that was quite an easy thing to do. We were all bound by adversity and a single cause. And we all came together across agendas on that. What we're trying to do now is much harder. There's no common cause as such, but we're trying to stand for something really positive, which is a kind of democratic purpose. And one thing that Nigel Farage did say, um, which was really interesting, was he said that politics was about timing. The Brexit Party was the end of a movement, or part of the movement. started many, many years ago, Peter you and people like that, about Euroscepticism. It seems to me where we are now, rather than trying to find the answer in a party in a political vehicle, what we're about is about trying to start a movement, or continue that movement on. I think this is about the movement, finding, finding common cause. We should let this breathe and give it time, and wait for the right timing from out of this movement,
1: then for political vehicles. So <coughs> okay, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, the person the person who's got the microphone at the back um,
17: it's Kat again. Um, I don't I actually don't think it's left and right that's the problem. Um, I think the whole thing um, about your scepticism is that there isn't it isn't left or right. It's been portrayed as left or right and had to pick aside, but it isn't. Um, the problem is wrong attributes. at attrib- the attrib- Wrongly attributing left and right to these issues, that's yeah. the problem. And also, this modern thing, which admittedly comes mainly from people who self identify as left, um, where you have to internalize being left wing or being right wing as an identity, and then label other people through moral judgment. So, you know, left wing identified people morally judge right-wing people that they have attributed that identity to and that is identity politics we don't need to throw the baby out with bath water by saying we can't now have strong and coherent values because that's how we actually function as a democracy we have strong coherent values we discuss we disagree we come to a resolution and then we form a consensus around the things that we do share So I
1: think we need to get away from this thing that it is somehow morally virtuous have no coherent principles. That's not the problem. Uh, Thank you very much indeed. Right. I'm only able to take... So I've got those two people there and you and that's it. And I'm really, really, really sorry. There you go. I can't see who those two people are but they were the two people who had their hands up. Well, stand up and take the microphone. Right, that person take the microphone. Right, give him that person a microphone. Oh no, you've got it. All right. Oh god. Right. Yes, yeah, so you two, you can start. Yeah, start. Yeah, go. Hi, uh, my name's
14: Gainer. Uh, I live in Yorkshire, and one of my concerns is freedom of speech. Now, some guy down there said something about homophobes, right? Uh, about feel coming out as being gay. Well, yeah, that's okay. That. I wouldn't expect that to be on national news. The kind of thing I would expect to be on national news is about the grooming gangs. Now, a lot of these people seem to have been silenced for some reason, and I cannot understand why, because it is widespread, absolutely widespread. You know, uh, towns around where I live, it is rife. Rotherham, Bradford. Dewsbury, Huddersfield, all these towns that are all around me and I've e- I'm even seeing changes in the city where I live against me personally. You know, verbal attacks, which I would never seen two years ago. So I do think and I do feel that we as people and victims, it's important that we get this platform
1: Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Right. Not, not, not yet, that man there. You sir. Yeah. No, yeah. You first, you there and then you. Oh, right. <laughs> <what> <laughs> yep, yeah, me first. Uh,
18: today you've just spoken as somebody who was Leader of Rostow Council who led the first prosecutions on the child
1: sex offences.
18: Shout somebody who was leader of Rostow Council at the time who led the first prosecution anywhere were in the country on that. We actually opened the evidence up to the child uh, inquiry. And I tell you, it is in every community across England, Wales, Scotland. And it is not a race issue in terms of the Asians. It is a sex abuse issue. And don't let the left or right try and say it's one group or another. It is absolutely a crime against children in our communities. Let's stop it. In terms of politics, we're here. Right. Quick, quick, quick. We're here to change politics for good. <coughs> so can we stop tinkering about the ed- edges and playing with... I'm not here to influence the Tories or Labour or anybody else. That's gone. Labour's dead. I want a new politics for good, so let's abolish the House of Lords and the larger English councils and put our own policies forward to replace some either with regional assemblies or smaller councils where people have heard and listened. That's the way forward. Just a last one, Claire, on uh, freedom of uh, speech. If we... Allow freedom of speech to be limited. We are limiting learning. But also, we should use freedom of speech to build responsibility into what you say and measure responsibility. Otherwise, it becomes a tantism, libertarian, unlimited society which we must guard against.
1: Okay. Right. 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 A couple of minutes. Right. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sir. Carry on
11: overarching principles
1: are from
18: there with shout struggling. Overarching principles that unite left and right or the anti-left and right, the um, lady up there was struggling, <coughs> democracy obviously is one, the other is national sovereignty, so if you can run around those two and bring all the smaller issues up. Uh, as for foreign political parties, so you're not a political party yet, but it's mentioned that there's a lot of local organisations and minor parties springing up what about having a, a Now, an overarching organisation for which these smaller groups, local groups, can associate themselves with the cause as a sort of national vehicle, and then later on, perhaps, you can bring it onto a a, a little party or something bigger and more unified. Just a suggestion
1: alright so it, it's finished yeah, yeah. right I'm now going to just ask the panel to go with their final inspiring thought of the day um, just one thought from each I mean you know something that you want people to take home with them Yasmin well
5: I like the idea of a loose association because I think we've come up with a lot of really interesting ideas today and lots of plans and the problem always occurs when you get home and you put you know you put the kettle on and you think about what you're going to do and you sort of you lose, you lose heart and I'd hate for us all to lose heart because we lose touch with each other on the other hand we can't all be holding each other's hands but there's got to be somewhere in between I hope Claire's come up with some, the, with some kind of method of staying in contact which can be useful when you need people to call on to help you build whatever it is you want to build locally.
1: Thank you very much brilliant, thank you
3: um, I think the thing that's really stood out to me today is really the idea that democracy is a process. I think that it has had so much meaning um, in this conference today. It doesn't begin and end with the ballot box. It's a continual process of engagement and understanding and discussing and talking with each other. And I think it's fantastic that free speech and um, you know democracy have just been really, really invigorated. And we hope that we can continue that um, going forward.
1: Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you.
6: Well, I'd like to just say that uh, what tends to work in bringing people together, I believe, is when they find that they have more in common than what divides them. And what happened uh, in um, April uh, and May was that people found they had far more in common in defending democracy, irrespective of what their political views, what political tribe they had been in before, they had in common the belief that the referendum was being uh, abused and, they, and people, many Remainers would come up to me and say, I voted Remain, but we have to have uh, this, this decision respected and we're voting for you. So the, the, the key thing for me is that if we are to bring people together, to take them away from other parties, uh, then we need to identify what is the common view is. Not the centre ground, but the common ground. Because if we can build common ground between people and find other issues like democracy, then you will have a movement that can uh, b- then become a party. Thank you very much.
2: <laughs> well, I like the idea of taking it on tour. It reminds me of uh, playing in a rock and roll band about 40 years ago. Um, but we need some more sex talks and rock and roll. At least we're going to have a pint soon. Um, I think what, what I take away from here is... Uh, ...a network. I think it's important that we try and stay in contact, we try to get a network, rather than we all have to sign up to the same thing. I think it's important that we have a network and, as I said before, have the thousand flowers bloom. But can I just take this last opportunity to say that um, the driving force around this today, and that is what she's doing best and doing in, in her outside life when she's not an MEP for the Brexit party, is... Claire, and I think we all owe Claire a big thank you for today.
1: Thank you. Right six. God, I'm mortified. Right. Thank you very much, Henry. Um, Right, a couple of things to to say uh, uh, and and just do before we go for that drink, which is, uh, to sum up, the one thing I just wanted to say is that a lot of people said, you know, drop the ideology. I remember the last time that happened when uh, Margaret Thatcher and various other people said, we now live in a post-ideological age, ideology doesn't matter, and it was the opening up of the there is no alternative post-ideological technocracy I'm not going through that. I've got ideas and I've got an ideology and I'm not giving them up so that somebody else isn't offended. I don't care. The reason I say that is not to use the old labels and not to be silly about it, but because I can cope with being in the same room with Brian and I can assure you ideologically we don't agree. (laughs) That's okay because on some things we do agree. And we've just been in the Brexit party and agreed wholeheartedly in our time there. So... It's not. We shouldn't have that kind of demand, which, by the way, is a constant demand in the European Parliament, which is is that we've all got to get on and have consensus and drop our extremist ideologies. No. That's called anodyne non-commitment to any idea. And I am the director of the Academy of Ideas, and I've got lots of them, and mine are better than yours, and I'll fight you for them, right? (laughs) (laughs) Secondly, secondly... Uh, people have said very important things. The most important thing, or one of the things to understand that what happened, and, and I think Brian really summed this up actually earlier, the, the emergence of the Brexit Party in the European elections terrorised and created an existential crisis with the Conservative Party, and, and, and actually for the Labour Party not know what him either, but the reason why then the Tory party's raison d'etre, and God, they really went for it, was to destroy the Brexit Party, it's still going on, by the way, it's still going on, was because... There is not allowed to be an insurgent party in this country. Now, I'm not making a case here for the Brexit party. I'm not even making an anti-Tory point. What I am saying is, is that there's got to be room for insurgent parties in any country in a democracy. You've got to have room for, and this includes, you know, people I ideologically detest, like, you know, Eco austerity mongers around the Extinction Rebellion or whatever. But I, want, I don't want them digging up the law and I want them standing in elections so I can not vote for them and argue against them. But you've got to therefore give them room to be an insurgent party. That's the whole point. And I do think that therefore the Let a Thousand Flowers Bloom point is so crucial. We've got to let a Thousand Flowers Bloom to see what lands. And so that we can actually work through where we're going to end up. So I'm definitely, as Leanne cautioned against, I'm not saying go home and sit and wait. I'm not mothballing anything. I'm saying get out and do what you need to do and let's then keep in touch. And that's therefore the final thing. We want to try and set up a change politics for good network, just CP4N network but it's going to need an infrastructure and a website. Now, all that that's going to do is like a bit like the Leavers Network did, but that's now closed, which is, is that there can be CP4N groups or whatever you want. But the main thing for us is that we've got your details and we can keep in touch. Well, at least keep in touch with you. Let's see if we can get the infrastructure together so that we're efficient. I don't want to make any false promises. But busy. I think we need a network so that we can actually just simply regather Keep in touch, keep in touch with each other, talk to each other. And that's not biding your time. That's just why you all settle different things and we'll see where it goes.